Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. I was dying. It was just a matter of time. That's Peninsula Congresswoman Jackie Spear reading the first few lines from her new memoir, Undaunted, she continues. Lying behind a wheel of the airplane, bleeding out of the right side of my devastated body, I waited for the rapid shooting to stop. Then said my act of contrition, praying by rote for forgiveness. I used what little energy I had left to finish that prayer before the lights went out. Miraculously, she managed to not only survive that incident, but to go on to forge a political career that took her into leadership roles first in San Mateo County, then in California's state legislature, and most recently, the United States Congress. The complete title of the memoir is Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. It recounts Congresswoman Spears' personal and political life, both of which have been punctuated by considerable setbacks and, at times, serious tragedies, as we just heard a moment ago. But both of those journeys are worth reflecting on because so much of Spears' work in the political realm has been directly informed by some of those personal twists of fate, from her work on women's health and equal rights to efforts intended to curb gun violence. And Coney, this is In-Depth, and on this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Congresswoman Spear about the book and her life in politics. Just a heads up, joining us in the conversation will also be my colleague, KCBS reporter Holly Kwan. Now, here is Jackie Spear. Congresswoman, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. Also in studio with us this week... Keeping the interview honest is my colleague, KCBS reporter Holly Kwan, who has been covering the work and career of Congresswoman Spear for a good long time. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> leave it at a good long time. Holly, thanks for being here, too. Sure. All right. So, Congresswoman Spear, uh, we started really at that very dramatic moment uh, in Guyana, the height of the Jonestown Massacre. I was wondering, for those of our listeners that are not familiar with that story, if you could just briefly uh, bring them up to speed. But then even more importantly than that, tell us a little bit about how that experience has propelled your political career forward. So it's a San Francisco-centric story because the People's Temple became of age, really, here in San Francisco, where Jim Jones had curried great favor from the electeds here and law enforcement, so much so that when persons actually defected from the People's Temple, uh, they looked the other way. And Congressman Ryan was one of those members of Congress who was very experiential in the way he looked at issues. So when concerned relatives came to him and said, uh, 
my loved one is in the People's Temple. They've gone down to Guyana. I'm concerned about their well-being. He took it very seriously. Uh, we met with many defectors. They all had really uh, gripping stories to tell about sexual abuse, child abuse, physical abuse, and a lot of illegal activity as well. So Congressman Ryan decided he wanted to go down there and investigate for himself. Uh, he took members of the Concerned Relatives Group along with members of the press, and we had a number of meetings with the State Department before going, all of whom at the State Department suggested that the trip was unnecessary because everything was just terrific down there. Mm. Obviously uh, not terrific, as uh, detailed in your book and uh, by the consequences of that visit. So I, I think probably most of our listeners are, are, are aware of Jonestown and how that all turned out. So skipping ahead a little bit, you suffered uh, five gunshot wounds during uh, your escape from Jonestown, and you had a very prolonged recovery from that experience. Uh, very traumatic. It was not the only traumatic experience of uh, your life, though. Tell us a little bit about how that Jonestown experience uh, and others uh, kind of informed your approach to politics and uh, the way that you approached your political career. So after the Jonestown experience, I reflected on it and decided, well, everyone gets their fair share of grief, and mine just came early in life. Um, but 14 years later, my husband was killed in an automobile accident when I was pregnant with our second child. And then I realized that you aren't given a fair share. You're given whatever you're given, and the real test is how you cope with that. And for me, the experiences, and there were many besides those. I mean, we, we lost a child through adoption, and I had a couple of miscarriages. What it has taught me is that it's, it's really much easier to take on challenges when you've been um, laid forth with the, uh, the, the life being snuffed out. So when I've taken on big issues, I've taken them on with a fervor that I might not have had it not been for that near-death experience. So I, when you've looked death in the eye, you're not nearly as scared in many aspects of your life. Mm. All right, and I think uh, we'll return to that theme a little bit later on in the interview. But I want to turn things over now to Holly Kwan, who, as I mentioned, uh, has been a reporter here in the Bay Area uh, for a good long time. And uh, Holly, you were telling me before we turned on these mics that there are a number of things that even though you know, you've been covering a lot of these topics for a long time, there's uh, stuff in there that you didn't know. There, there was, and I was glad to find out about <laughs> this. Um, well, how about the origin of your... Oh. A chosen name versus your your birth name. I, I didn't I didn't realize that, and I thought that was very profound because it certainly shows where your mindset was at the time. So I, I was young. I was uh, between the ages of ten and thirteen during the Kennedy era in American politics, and I was very taken with the Kennedys. It really motivated me to be interested in politics and public service initially, and particularly Jacqueline O'Kennedy. Excuse me, Jacqueline Kennedy. So when the president was assassinated, of course, you know everyone in the country sent their condolences uh, to the first lady, as did my family. And we received a card back, and it had been franked, as all of our mail is franked with our signatures on it. So I started copying Jacqueline Kennedy's signature, and. 
when it came time for my confirmation, I took St. Jacqueline as my confirmation name. So if you look closely in the book at Jacqueline Kennedy's signature, and if you look at mine, there are similarities to it. <laughs> and that was intentional. <laughs> that weren't. That, yes, it was intentional. The, the eerie part of it is, of course, that years later, my husband was killed in an automobile accident. And there's a photograph that was taken by one of the uh, press photographers at his funeral with my then five-and-a-half-year-old son, Jackson, standing there looking at the casket that's very reminiscent of John John um, when the casket of JFK was um, being um, you know, moved uh, across the um, during the funeral procession. So um, the, the fact that I've lived longer than Jacqueline Kennedy now makes me hope that the parallels have stopped. <laughs> mm, yeah. There are so many things that had happened. And, and I, what I thought was, was interesting was this network of women that you, you know, whether it was, you know, a de facto that it occurred, but that you have the, the Merry Widows. Who are the Merry Widows and what, what, were, they, what were they for? <clears throat> so the book is about, you know, resilience. How do you, how do you take yourself out of the depths of depression and angst and, and you know, build your life. And for me, it's been around family, friends, and faith. So the friends part is a very important part of my life. Uh, it is now, it was then. The Merry Widows Club was created actually as a result of my personal experience when my husband was killed, a friend from Sacramento, whose husband had died the year before, um, drove in this torrential rain pour down to see me and was there for me during the wretched months that followed. And she paid it forward, and I felt committed to paying it forward. And so when my um, now very, very good friend, Janiana Harrow's husband, um, was diagnosed with glioblastoma, I reached out to her. And we have been doing that over the decades. So there's a group of about 12 of us. Uh, we call it the Merry Widows Club. We meet four or five times a year. We help each other through the experiences because you know some of us are later in that process than others. And, you know, we always joke it's the club that no one wants to join, but it brings us so much solace coming together. We have our Valentine's gathering happening um, in just two weeks. So how important is it, do you think, to, to pass that along, to have that kind of support network? Because you, you hear sometimes of, of women finding them each other as competitors versus collaborators. Well, the, there's a fair amount of that in life, and I've had a hard time coming to grips with it because it certainly happened to me as a young woman candidate when I was running for Congress the first time. And it was a woman who came up to me and says, I'm not going to vote for you just because you're a woman. And I thought to myself, do you ever say that about a man? And I've always thought that women were more responsible for women not getting elected to office than men. And we saw that kind of bear out in Hillary Clinton's campaign where half of the almost half of the college educated women voted for Donald Trump. And I think that has something to do with our double X chromosome. I, I cannot explain it any other way. Uh, men tend to support each other because they see that by supporting each other, they all rise. But that's not necessarily the case for women. And it was Madeleine Albright who said to me after Hillary's defeat, because I asked her that question, and she says, you know, it has more to do with successful women, 
college graduates who looked at Hillary and it somehow made them feel less feel less than. Oh. And because mm. it made them feel less than that they somehow weren't as good that prompted them to vote for Donald Trump. So we've got to get over feeling less than. It it elevates everyone who's female if women are in positions of leadership. Sticking with uh, a theme of uh, equality and uh, women's issues, uh, another little historical tidbit that was turned up in the book is a term called uh, Ryan Girls. Oh, Could you... <laughs> You're going there. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best segue, but we'll make it work. We'll make it work. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Ryan Girls were back in the, I, I guess this would have been the mid-60s? Mid-60s. Uh, you know, my life, and maybe most people's lives, but particularly my life, has has had all of these um, sets of circumstances that should not have happened but did happen mm. that have created a pathway for me. So I'm 16 years old. Uh, my parents get a solicitation in the mail from then-Assemblyman Leo Ryan. They're obviously not going to make a contribution, so I fill it out and say, I'm, you know, I'm a high school kid. I don't have any money, but I'd like to volunteer. So one Saturday morning, I'm vacuuming, which was my job to do every single Saturday. I hated it. And the phone rings, and the vacuum cleaner's going. I'm listening to this voice on the other end saying, can you come to this address? We'd like to interview you. And so I go. It turns out it's Leo Ryan's home. He's got his campaign committee there. And uh, they talked to me for a few minutes and said, all right, go get this uniform. It wasn't a uniform. It was a costume down at this San Bruno dress shop. And it was, you know, the height of Beatlemania. So it was a black turtleneck sweater, a black houndstooth miniskirt, black tights, white go-go boots, and a little bobby hat that matched the skirt. Um, the objectivity uh, makes me wince a little bit, but <laughs> there was a, a group of us young women that went on campaign uh, events, two campaign events, and you know, passed out literature at local grocery stores, and that was really my first experience in politics. It should be noted that uh, you you did actually have political conversations with Ryan at the time, because <clears throat> in some ways, I mean, you did have people would ask you about where he stood, and you you would need to be able to answer those questions, right? Yeah, but you know, the truth of the matter was, we were <laughs> <laughs> I was trying, I was trying, trying to frame it yeah, a little bit. You were you were trying to make it a little more. Um, uh, political and uh, <laughs> thoughtful than it was. You you were raised by um, you had a lot of strong female figures mm -hmm. around you, and maybe at the time you didn't recognize how influential that was going to be. Um, your your mother, your paternal grandmother, um, talk or or even even your friends. Uh, wasn't it was your your best friend in high school that was campaigning for 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 the opposition? That's right, Kathleen Wentworth, who is one of my best friends today, and who was. Um, a, a United Airlines pilot when I got shot down in Guyana, and she was the first friend who came and visited me um, in her pilot's uniform. Wow. And, and so how, how do you draw on that? I mean, I, I, I think of how um, you were so young when you started out um, and, and, and recognizing that you needed a sense of purpose. How does anybody who's in high school recognize that that there's something out there that I need to to pursue and then and then that then then dictated when you were in in Guyana realized that you had you had a goal you had a sense of purpose you had to figure out how to what to do with it 
I don't know that I felt I had a sense of purpose in high school. I mean, I look at young people today, and many of them are truly profoundly driven and extraordinarily gifted. I think of the Parkland um, High School students. Right. I mean, they have a presence about them that is really um, mind-blowing. But I, I will say for me, if I had a drive, I mean, I, I was interested in politics from an early age, certainly the Ryan experience. But I had also run for student body president at Mercy and failed, by the way. I, I love to tell young people that I'm a three-time loser um, because I've lost three elections. Student body president in high school, the first time I ran for Congress, and when I ran for lieutenant governor in 2006, wanting to become the first woman lieutenant governor. And now, finally, we have one right, right. about um, 12 years later. Hmm. So how do you how do you bounce back? I mean, that's, that's the key thing. I, I love the line that you wrote about pain yields action. And and there's this notion that we're, we're pain avoidant. You know, we're, we're trying to avoid that as much as possible. But once once you're confronted with it, it is what you do in, in the aftermath. I think we learn more, um, gain more power from the negative experiences in our life than the positive. I think sometimes success um, breeds a, uh, a lack of... Uh, energy and interest and so when things come too easy it is not necessarily the best pathway to success you're listening to kcbs's in depth our weekly interview program featuring conversations that bring you a new perspective on the news of the week Today, we're speaking to Congresswoman Jackie Speer about her new book, Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. Here's the rest of the conversation. It seemed to me like you always can draw from your experiences. For instance, I remember when you came forward with the staffer that that harassed you. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, you know, that's something that happened way back when. You, you kind of shove it back in the back of your mind. But it comes to the forefront in such a big way, in, in a, such a significant manner, headline-making. And that was the, it was the Me Too mo- movement, and, mm-hmm. and you, were, where you were testifying. Actually, what it was, I had been for years trying to get some sexual harassment prevention training in Congress. I had worked on that issue when I was in the state legislature, so it wasn't new to me. It was something that I had worked on for a long time, and they just basically dismissed it. So when the Me Too movement took off, I said, I'm not going to let this opportunity go. So I videotaped a um, message to the women in on staff in Congress saying, hey, this happened to me. Um, I want to help fix it. Come tell me your stories. And that went viral. Mm-hmm. And, and and you ended up, I mean, what was the response then? So many women came forward with stories that you would, um, you know, understand, certainly. I remember one woman's telling me that she um, actually was on the House floor, and the, so she was a, a senior staffer, and a member came up behind her, rubbed up against her, and stuck his tongue in her ear on the house floor. So these stories are um, were so real and so raw that I felt compelled to do something about it. Now, 
there have been other experiences in my life that I really shoved way to the back, and one that I speak very briefly about in the book, and almost didn't speak about it, was the fact that my grandfather on my paternal side um, had molested me as a young child. And it's, uh, it's happened so much more frequently in our society. And so I felt, you know, as much as I think I have dealt with it, that I needed to talk about it in the book so that others would feel that they could come forward and that we, we can address it in a much more um, upfront manner because it's, it, it's one of those situations, much like the Me Too experiences, that you feel ashamed. Um, when a young woman is sexually assaulted or raped, she feels ashamed like somehow, what did I do to cause this? And um, in all of these cases, it's, you know, it's, it's not about what the victim has done. It's what the perpetrator has done that we allow to get a pass more often than not. Returning to this <clears throat> theme that there is a direct relationship between a lot of the personal experiences and twists in the road that you've experienced throughout your life and uh, some of the issues that you've pursued uh, in your legislative work, tell us a little bit about how those personal experiences can propel your legislative um, work forward. What's does it does it add urgency to your work? How does it inform that work? Well, it, it it certainly is the basis of a fair amount of my legislative work. It's not the only basis. Uh, I refer to this outrage meter in my gut, and if I read something and it it outrages me to a level that um, incenses me, I want to do something about it. And the power of being in a legislative role is you can do something about it. You can introduce a bill. You can, you know, require that the issue be elevated. Sexual assault in the military was an issue that absolutely astonished me when I got to Congress, that it would go on at all, that it was swept under the rug. And so I used the megaphone of the House floor and started telling the stories of women and men who had been sexually assaulted in the military. Now that is a front and center issue now as we look at the military, as we look at our military academies where we have seen a 300% increase in sexual assaults in the military academies of this country where the leaders of tomorrow are being trained. So uh, sometimes it's been personal experience, sometimes not, but it all has to do with this outrage that comes from my gut. What 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 still outrages you? I mean, I, I, then. <laughs> it's only a thirty-minute program. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think uh, income inequality outrages me. Um, the injustice that pervades so much of society, the discrimination that women and persons of color continue to have to deal with. Uh, those are issues that I find unacceptable in a country that has the wherewithal, the financial resources um, to rid ourselves of so many of these. I, I love San Francisco. I was born in the city. Um, I give Mark Benioff so much credit for saying this has got to be fixed. And to have Prop C pass and now, unfortunately, be lingering in the courts, uh, but will eventually make the city take this issue and really put the resources it needs to resolve it. 
is so important. What frustrates you about not just issues that, that may or take so long to get resolved, but also what frustrates you about Washington? Washington is so um, hamstrung by rules that date back centuries sometimes. And what I love about this freshman class is they're not taking any of it. And they're questioning a lot of things that need to be questioned. And they're, you know, they're of a, a generation that isn't going to settle for, well, this is the way it's always been done. So I'm thrilled by it. Um, but Washington does um, has a very slow prodding process, and it takes forever. If we really want to settle all these issues, if we want the American people to feel that the government is really working for them, we have got to get rid of dark money. We've got to get rid of super PACs. Public financing of elections would be such a huge titan- uh, seismic change in in how our, we govern. Um, and I don't know if we're going to see it in our lifetime or not. Speaking of uh, hidebound rules, uh, this just reminded me of uh, your very first entrance onto the congressional stage. <laughs> uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, I, I guess you could call it a faux pas, but uh, maybe not so much a faux pas as you did not observe the uh, usual way that people present themselves on the Congress uh, congressional floor for the first time. Tell us a little bit about that. So I was elected in a special election. So they give new members at that setting two to three min- minutes to say a few words to the membership. And typically what members do is thank their family and friends who've traveled to be there and sit down. I didn't, no one told me what the rules were. And they're <laughs> unspoken rules. So I talked about um, the Iraq War and um, how it is crippling our country and that George W. Bush was making a a horrific mistake. Well, I started being booed by my Republican colleagues and then led by Daryl Issa. Was this Uh, your very first day? This is my very first day. This is right (laughs) after I got sworn in as a member of Congress. And Daryl Issa uh, leads a a band of uh, fellow members on the Republican side who were incensed by it and walks out. So I was kind of taken aback by it. And while they were booing, I just kept talking. (laughs) Speaking uh, of undaunted. (laughs) But then I found out afterwards that there was another member who had been booed some 20 years earlier. And it was none other than Nancy Pelosi when she talked about AIDS on the House floor in her Mm. maiden speech. So I was in good company. Yeah, good Bay Area company there. All right, and uh, to close things out, so in your book you talk about the truly traumatic experience uh, of Jonestown, and you mentioned that as uh, just a few days later we got news of the Moscone killing, the Harvey Milk killing, and you said that you felt like the world was coming to an end. Uh, I wonder, you know, given given this perspective that you've had following politics in California and around the country for as long as you have. How does this moment, 2019, in politics compare to other moments that you've faced down? It's not normal. And it's really important for us, as Americans who treasure the Constitution and the freedoms that we have, not to f- fall into this, oh, we're, we're so accustomed to this now. There is nothing that is customary about what we are enduring right now. This is not a new normal. We can't make it be a new normal. And it's really important for us to take back our country on every level. 
All right. And we'll let that be the closing point. We have been speaking to Congresswoman Jackie Spear. Her new book is Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. Congresswoman, thank you so much. Oh, it's been great to be with you. And Holly Kwan, thank you, too. Thank you. (laughs) You can find past editions of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do tune in again next week for our next in-depth conversation with some of the biggest newsmakers and news shapers here in the Bay Area. I'm Keith Menconi, and I'll see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.